Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast number 17. Today we've got a really interesting guest in Martin Kennedy. Do you want to say hello there, Martin? Hello, Wallace. How are you getting on? Very well. Uh, very well. Good to have you on. Um, and as you've seen there, when Martin said hello, his background's much more interesting than mine. We'll get into that as actually his farm in the background. Um, but before we get into that, just quickly for new listeners or, or, or old listeners, whatever you're listening on, whether you're watching on YouTube, listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that sort of thing, um, make sure to give it a review. Maybe say what you're liking, say what you're not liking, apart from me on the face cam. Um, and if there's any other guests you might look to have, might like to have, I'm really covering everything. We've been folk in field sports, we've been folk in farming, we've been folk in policy, trying to get someone in fishing at the minute. Anyone in sort of rural food production or rural production of any sort, Give us, give us a shout about it. And the best way to get in touch is over on the Facebook and Instagram pages, Rural 2 Kitchen. So give us a follow there and you see what's happening. But enough of all that nonsense. We'll get into sort of fun stuff that we're here for. Um, Martin, could you tell us a bit about yourself, maybe a bit of a history? Are you from a farm? Maybe some sort of stuff like that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, no bother. Uh, born and brought up in this area. Uh, actually born in, in, the, in the state here, born in Aberfeldy. Um, we're up in Highland, Perthshire. We're just about three miles from Aberfeldy here, actually. Um, and my father came to the state that we're on just now back in November 1946. Um, and uh, and and he had his first challenge was the the winter of '47 that everybody talks about, and you know it's, it's which must have been pretty horrendous. There's no doubt about that. And then probably his second challenge was uh, Burden, his, his, his two sons coming along. So there's myself, my older brother, my older brothers, uh, uh, Drew. He's nine years older than myself. Um, and then uh, so it, it would be. It'd be, what, be 56, my brother was born, and I was 65 when I was, uh, in 1965 when I was born, and uh, dad's died sadly back in 2007, but my brother's still on the farm at, at, at home. So uh, we got the chance to come here in, in 1996 to take the rest of the state on, because now so it was a small hill farm, and, uh, and uh, it wasn't really enough for my father and, you know, Two young lads as well. There wasn't enough uh, land on it. Tenanted hill farm, and so I went went to college. Um, did which had a whale of a time. To be quite honest, like everybody else, it was absolutely brilliant. Uh, three years block release, then a year's full time uh, farm management, which was uh, really good and really interesting. At Elmwood, um, and it was really good at that time because Elmwood had everything. They had the, the, the new piggery as it was then. It was built. They had a modern dairy. They had everything. The arable side, the whole lot. It was really good. Uh, but like everybody else at college, I spent too much money. So when I left college, I took a harvest job. And uh, and I thought I was applying for a harvest job in Fife, but it turned out uh, they said, would you be quite happy to go to Strickland? And I'm thinking, yeah, well, that must be maybe near Glenrothes or something. I had no idea when it was that age. It turned out it was up just nine miles from Fraserburgh. So I uh, <laughs> went up to Fraser. I was two harvests, so I was up there, which was brilliant. On like a house on fire. So uh, it was quite a change for me, to be honest. It was um, going from a... A Massey Ferguson 35X with double furrow plow conventional 794 going up to a, a four furrow reversible with a 100 horsepower tractor was a, a huge change. So, uh, but absolutely great. Got on brilliant with the manager up there and it was, uh, yeah, really good. So I went up the second year as well. Then I got a chance to work in a farm just outside Aberfeldy with 140 cows um, and 700 use. And I was there for seven years till it got. Um, sold and then we got made redundant because the place was bought over by the folk who were going to farm it in hand and uh, then I got a chance to, I was quite heavily involved in young farmers at the time, young farmers have, have played a big part of my life and uh, 
which was fantastic. Uh, and I didn't really want to leave the area. I got the offer of one or two jobs out and about, but uh, I didn't want to leave the area. So I got a chance to go on a, a digger with a local digger contractor. For, so I was there for two years. And I learned a huge amount sitting in a digger, believe it or not, which has been great for when I'm at home here now, because the amount of stuff I've done here now with my own old digger is, is great. Um, and then... Uh, and then we got the chance, the state actually here where my, my father and my brother was, um, things maybe weren't going the way they were liking it. And they were, they were the, when it was farmed in hand and we got the opportunity to take the rest of the state on. Um, and so uh, dad had said, well, I'll need to see my youngest son, see if he wants to come home. So we got that chance and that was back in 1996 and we've been here ever since. So we took on the, the hill and the uh, sheep at the valuation in 96, which was quite high at the time. Um, <laughs> although relatively speaking, it's probably not that bad now. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we'd, we'd, it was all blackface ewes and mule ewes at that time uh, and no cows. And we now have um, 600 ewes and 60 cows. And they're split between continental ewes in the low ground, then Chevious and blackies in the hill. And then we've got continental cows in the low ground. And we've got um, uh, highland cows in the hill now as well. So it's uh, so that's the sort of, that's where the sort of, yeah, Kicked off here, born and bred here, and, and still here now. And I'm here with my wife and, and three daughters. My oldest daughter works uh, with Scottish Woodlands. My middle daughter's uh, at home full time, and my youngest daughter's at home part time. So yeah, it's good. Excellent. Are they are they uh, two younger daughters at university or something? Or are they? They both they both did uh, went to to Oakridge to do an HND. Um, uh, so. oh, yeah, my oldest daughter Jillian, she did a an, an honours degree in uh, uh, environmental geography at Stirling University. Uh, but Katrina, that's Jillian, and Katrina and Yvonne both went to Oatridge. So, but they're both completed now in home. So, yeah, good. Mm. Could you just quickly tell us uh, a wee bit there, Martin? You've, you've told us about the farm and stuff, but you were just saying to me before we kicked off sort of what the background is and stuff. Yeah the, background, yeah, the background there is behind me. Just you can see sort of behind me, we've got two polytunnels. We built, um, yeah, we're all, everything was lambed outside. We don't have an awful lot of sheds here. Um, and in 2009, we built a polytunnel uh, just for lambing in, just to, you know, just to try and get some of the weather. As I say, we're 800 feet here. We've got 2,500 feet, so we're quite exposed. Um, but the backdrop behind me is a shooting estate. Um, and uh, the shooting side often gets a lot of criticism, but which is really unfair because that's brought a lot of biodiversity to the area as well. Brings a lot of employment. Um, and it's, you know, we've got a lot of oyster catchers, peewits, you know, curlews, you know, they're, 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 uh, which is great, but that's, you know, a lot of predators are under control because it's a keeper of the state. Um, you know, foxes are under control. And it, the difference that makes is amazing. So it's, uh, but no, we've got a good good backdrop. We're, we think we're doing quite a lot for the environment here. Um, you know, we've got that backdrop that's behind me would not be like that if it wasn't for agriculture. And I think people mm -hmm. tend to forget that. And, and you know, that we have got a fantastic environment in Scotland, something to be proud of. And if we didn't have, um, in this part of the world, if it wasn't for livestock farming, this we'd probably be looking at, you know, scrub pastures and yeah, nothing really to, nothing for the tourists to look at anyway, yeah. And you know, to look at it from a, talking about biodiversity, just at a glance, you're not seeing any monoculture. There's no fields the same color, there's trees, there's yeah. everything, you know, yeah. it, um, I don't know how you can look at that and think it's bad for the environment. But. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, well, it's funny. It's, it's interesting, Wallace, because you go right to the top of the hill at the backdrop there. There is quite a bit of that is monoculture because it's trees. There's a, there's a 500 acre block up there, and then and then yeah. straight across the other side of the valley from here, it goes from Aberfeldy basically down to Dunkeld, and it's solid forestry that was planted back in the 80s. Now, if you go into the forestry. 
that's desertification. I mean, that's it's unbelievable. It's just you go in there and it's it's dark, it's barren. Any wildlife that was in that area before comes out onto the farmland to feed and 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 whatever. So so the only monoculture we'll have is too many trees in one block. That's what we'll have in this part of the world. And we're, but there's there's not an issue with trees. We've never had an issue with trees. It's uh, you know if they're there they're in the right place. You know you're getting shade. You're getting you know you're getting you're, you're creating wildlife corridors. All these kind of things. You're getting sheltered as well sometimes, uh, which makes a big difference. But this you know big blocks is not a great thing. Yeah, well, I mean, if it's just a thick, big block, there's not, there's not going to be any fauna because the canopy's too thick. So exactly. you're just, yeah, it's. It, I think there's, there's so many merits of trees, but I think like everything, it's got to be done in regulation, you know. And yeah. or maybe you know, it's maybe a, a different. Well, well, I plan to go down that route in a minute with you talking to yeah. you a bit about no that. But, uh, it's interesting you mentioned forty seven. Um, just before Martin and I sort of hit record, there we were having a chat a bit about uh, on Aaron. There was a snow in twenty thirteen. And my grand, my late grand now, uh, was uh, sitting in the kitchen in 2013 saying, oh, you know, this is nothing like it was in 47. And the thing is, even if it was worse in 2013, there would have been no machinery to help them dig through snow yeah. and stuff. It must have been dreadful. <laughs> um, you can't, you can't think <laughs> what it would yeah, be. Yeah. Um, what was other things? Yeah, you mentioned uh, Young Farmers has played a pretty big part of your life, Mark. Could you maybe tell us a bit about that? maybe where Young Farmers has taken you. <clears throat> yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. To be honest, if it wasn't for Young Farmers, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing just now with NFE Scotland. I'm absolutely certain about that. I mean, you know, it, it was a great, uh, you know, it kind of brought you out of your shell. I was always, you know, I pretty shy, to be honest. I probably still am, realistically. Maybe folk don't think that, but I am. Um, and, it, and it brought, uh, it kind of brings you out, brings you out of your shell a bit. I mean, I got involved in Young Farmers when I was about... I, yeah, I wouldn't have been 14. I would probably be 16, 17 before I started going along. And uh, it was just great fun. You know, it was, that's what it was. I mean, that's what it was all about. It was good fun, but educational as well. You know, you're going to, you know, as, as again, a lot of folk are very keen on stock judgments, valuations. And the, probably the most daunting thing ever was uh, speech-making competitions. And I can remember the first, you know, junior competition I was in and, and you were quaking in your boots, to be honest. <laughs> Standing up there doing a, I don't know, First one, usually, maybe if it was a junior speech-making team, you'll maybe have a, a, a chairman, a speaker, and a vote of thanks or something. And you usually get started off with doing a vote of thanks. And even, it's only maybe two minutes at the end or something. And you're sitting there. And, of course, you're last, and you're, you're just shaking. But it, it just gets you over that sort of hurdle about speaking to people and speaking to people in the right manner when it comes to, you know, holding meetings. And, and it's really it really shows when it comes to holding meetings now. And, and you go to some events where meetings are held, and you think, You've been, you know, you've been a speech making team. You've been a, you, you, you know, you, yeah, you see that how people can hold a meeting and conduct a meeting, and I think that's really important. And uh, and it just, yeah, it just, you know, speech making was always a great thing, and it just gave you an opportunity to be able to speak in public. Um, and I've no doubt. I mean, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. And, and it's, you know, it was, it was just great fun. You know, you meet, I mean, my, and of course, you go through the, went through all the sort of ranks and and, and young farmers as well. Uh, was chairman of the club for uh, two years and then went on to county and it was East Area chairman. In fact, when, they, when it was Perthshire County, well, it's district, but it was Perthshire County, we always called about it at that time. And my wife's actually Fife and Kinross district chairman. So yes. she was from Oxter Muxty and Fife. So that's that's how we met. So it's uh, I think that happens so often, you, you know, in this kind of uh, 
uh, industry, you, you meet your wife through young farmers, that quite often happens. So it's, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, but young farmers have been, have been brilliant. We still support them. I still think I'm a young farmer. I still, we still go to the, fortunately, unfortunately, we can't have them now, but when it comes to the dances and, and uh, Christmas ball, burn supper, you know, all these kind of things, you know, if there's any event going, we'll, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of sort of older vice presidents and that such like, we'll still go along and support them. It's, it's been brilliant, you know. No, it's it's a it's a great thing. I mean, I never fully fully got involved. There's still time to do so, but um, we started that in Young Farmers in 2015, uh, and maybe the core group of like 12, and it ran for four years. And we, I wouldn't say we did loads, but you met folk, and I was maybe one of the more confident in the group, and sort of brought the ones that were maybe not quite as, and you gained so much from that, you know. And it's it's a it's a brilliant thing, and like you say. Aaron Young Farmer started in 2015, but Aaron Agricultural, whatever it was called, uh, youth, I can't remember exactly, but ended in 1993. And just about every committee member was married to one of the other ones. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, it's a small pool in Aaron, don't get me wrong. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it does. It's like-minded, isn't it? But um, well, we'll, we'll get, you mentioned your role in the NFU there, Mark. Could you tell us a bit about your role? Um, you've also sort of went through, through the ranks there, as you say. Uh, maybe how you got involved in that you mentioned young farmers was maybe part of the inspiration but you know <clears throat> yeah well, there was and, and to be honest it was it was probably young farmers that kicked it off <clears throat> it would be because we always had like from our uh, young farmers club we always had two delegates we'd go along to um to, to, to a branch meeting you never said it and you sat at the back and just kind of listened but it was uh, but it was always quite interesting and uh, just seeing what was going on and it, it was always apparent that you know in terms of I think this is where the union's got a big problem because union's got, it's not a problem, it's just a, a challenge. You've got every sector to look at. So if you've got a, a single organisation, whether it's looking after maybe, you know, cereals, beef, sheep, pigs, whatever it is, they're concentrated on the one thing. You know, that's the bit. But where NFU Scotland's got to take into account is it's every it's every part of the industry because we're so interdependent between everything. And it became apparent to me at that time, even just going along as a as a as a, a, a delegate from Young Farmers, I thought, yeah, there's quite a challenge here for NFU Scotland to try and get the bigger picture and look at because quite often decisions that are made have conflicts between mm -hmm. sectors, and that's a challenge. And uh, so, yeah, so, and then probably it was when we came here in our own right in 96 that uh, we, of course, Dad was a, always a member of NFU Scotland, never hadn't, uh, had never not been a member. And, um, and I thought, well, well, we'll need to do that in our own right as well. So we became a member straight away in 1996 and uh, just started going along to the, the local meetings, Highland Persia branch meetings. Um, and, uh, and and then it was it was probably, yeah, just... Just, you know, people just persuading me to maybe take on a role. I think the first role I had was LFA monitor, um, so less favoured area monitor. So I went on that and I was just sort of reporting back to the branch. And then, it, you know, I got a wee bit further up the tree and then, then people wanted me to sort of, you know, represent them in the LFA committee. And then in 2009, I was on the national committee for less favoured areas. And then, and then people just started, you know, pushing me again. They just sort of kept on going. I was chairman, uh, vice chairman of the LFA committee, then chairman of the LFA committee, and then I got my arm twisted to stand for vice president in 2017, uh, uh, which I did, and, and I got in, and uh, the rest history, as they say. So I was vice president for four years, and now I'm president. And it's just, yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's hugely challenging, um, hugely challenging, hugely time consuming. But, you know, you stick your head above the parapet and, um, yeah, I'd rather be, 
you know, the opportunity came, and it's always difficult because you think, well, is the timing right? And you think, well, maybe the time is not right. Maybe I could have given the girls more of a hand at home, you know, until they got into the swing of things. But then when is the timing right? The opportunity was there, I took it. And then if I didn't take it at that point, well, it might not have come along. And then then you're thinking, well, I should have had a go at something. So I would, I would, I'll, never, I'll never regret having a go. And I think it's always a struggle. You know, you get criticism quite often as well. I'm not going to say that doesn't happen because that's... But then... I'd rather be criticised for trying than criticised for just sitting at home moaning about it. So, because uh, that doesn't get anybody anywhere. So, <laughs> it's uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think you just yeah. I think we've got such a story to tell, such a fantastic industry, um, and I think we've got to really drive that forward. And that was the two things when it when it really got um, down the nitty gritty about definitely standing for president, which I always thought once I was standing for VP, I wasn't going to stand for a VP unless I thought no, I'm going to keep going if I can. And the two things was trying to get a policy right that fits Scotland and trying to maybe try and educate, um, you know, the general public a bit better and try and deflect some of this myths that comes against agriculture all the time, because it's not the case. We're tired with the same stick that that's, you know, the likes of California, Brazil, the States, you know, all, all, all you know, it's, you know, Australian trade deals, all these things that are concerned right now. And uh, but we're not like that in Scotland. We've got we're doing it really well here. Yeah, we can do more. There's no doubt about that. But in comparison to other parts of the world, we're, we're in a great position. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Um, with the NFU, for maybe some listeners aren't aren't aware of it, Martin. What what is the NFU? What what is their role in the industry? <clears throat> yeah, well, NFU Scotland is a, is a lobbying a lobbying organisation. That's primarily that's the sole thing is to lobby. Um, uh, uh, you know, governments, uh, whether it's whether it's um, uh, Scottish government, whether it's UK government, whether it's still Europe, you know, it's on, or in the global picture, because we still have a, a, a voice in there. So we're lobbying to make sure we can get a, a good uh, future for Scot for Scottish agriculture. And we'll have, we'll have quite a wide set up, we'll have about eight and a half, nine thousand members, and we'll have a, a sort of structure in place where we'll have um, nine regions across the country, from Shetland all the way down to to, to Wigtonshire and Stranraer, um, and uh, you know Argyle Islands in the west, east central, you know right across the board, and it covers about seventy three branches. Um, so there's a, a fair network, and then each region has a, a regional manager, and then we have a group secretary network through the mutual as well through NFU Mutual. So it's a structural, very well structured organisation. Uh, we have a president, uh, two vice presidents, chief executive, and then we have a board structure beneath that. We will have our, our regional chairs and our commodity chairs as well, covering so, so on the board. Quite a big board, actually. The board's about 20, 24, 25. It's quite a big board. Um, 26, actually. There's a count in everybody. Um, it's quite a big board. Um, but, it's, yeah, it's good. It works well. I guess, I guess you need a big board and something like that, because, as you say, there's so many different facets all coming in together. It's yes. not just keep farming or, you know... Agroforestry, it's everything. It's quite yeah. a sophisticated outfit. It's a lot more than I actually realised. Do you have any yeah. idea how many employees there is from it? Yeah, we've got. Yeah, we've got nearly forty employees in total. Right. Well, yeah. full time. Very good. Uh, and just just one question on the, the presidency there, Martin. Is is it a strict four year term and then no or. No, the way it works is when you're standing for vice president, um, and it changed changed a number of years ago now, right now. But if you're standing for vice president, you get you get your first two years. You can be a vice president for as long as you want. Uh, that you know, if you keep standing for VP, that you can do that. There's no limit to that. But your first two years is sort of protected, so nobody can put you out. You've got two years in. It gives you that two years to sort of 
you know, getting under, understanding how things work. Um, then, then you're on an annual election after that. So you'll be up, you have to stand, you know, go for the hustings or whatever it is every year after that. President is slightly different. It's um, it's a minimum uh, of two years, but a maximum of four. But it's only two-year terms you can do. So if that's me, I've been in the role now for, a, a, well, I suppose that's maybe six months now. And so in 18 months' time, I can't be challenged in March, uh, next February next year, um, but the following February, I can't. I, I can't be either because yeah. if I get in in the in the following February, if I stand again for the next two years, that's it. So it's two two-year terms as a maximum. So a president can only do a maximum of four years, and I think that's right because um, it gives that opportunity for changing ideas, developing ideas, creates that charm, brings a freshness to the to the sort of leadership team, and that you know hopefully comes onto the board as well. Um, and, I, and I think that's it is important because you don't want an organisation that's going to be stale. You want a change. You want a change in the organisation to keep it fresh all the time. No, absolutely. And I think, I mean, it's a strange comparison to make, but when you see political leaders leading for more than four years, it's yeah. or, or more than sort of whatever the term states, like 25 yeah. years stuff, there's always problems. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the Australian trade deal just in, in, in chatting there, uh, Martin. What, what do you think it means for us as, as an industry? We were really worried about this because, and it's it, it's kind of related to Brexit in a way because um, you know we've never made trade deals before. You know, we've not. Well, no, that's not true. We haven't made trade deals for probably nearly fifty years because yeah. that's been done by Europe because we've been part of Europe until last year. So, um, and and the thing is, we've not. We're the new kids in the block when it comes to this, and of course. The UK government are wanting to be able to say, well, Brexit is not a problem at all. We can show that we can actually make our own trade deals. Um, and, and But however, Europe's looking at that in a slightly different... They're wanting to make things as difficult as possible for us as we leave, because they are saying, you know... Um, and, and that is causing us some some real difficulties at the minute still. Um, but, but the reality is when it comes to making the trade deals from our own perspective, the UK government haven't done this for almost 50 years. And we are really concerned about this, particularly the Australian trade deal, because the Australians have been making deals all the time. They know what they're on, they know what they're doing, and they'll be fighting for as big a, a, a share of our market as possible. I mean, it comes to things like beef, for example. I mean, you know, Australia's got a population that's less, way less than half of the population within the UK. Um, it's about, it's more than 30 times the size of the UK. Um, more than 60% of the land is devoted to beef production. So they're a massive agricultural exporting nation. Um, so they'll be seeing the UK as a target. And they're, they're looking for this true liberalisation or free trade after, and, and they're looking at down after 15 years' time, they're wanting to have access to about 175,000 tonnes of beef. Now, our total imports, because we're not self-sufficient in beef, is about 360,000 tonnes. Most of that comes from Ireland and landscapes is similar to what ourselves. Is. But so, and the, the danger we have here is it's this is setting a precedent for any other country that wants to make a deal with us. So it's a cumulative effect. So as New Zealand want to go to have the same access, I'm pretty sure they will when it comes to um, uh, the states, uh, when it comes to uh, any country you want to say that's going to have a free trade deal with us, they will want that the same access. Canada will want the same access, I'm sure. And then the implications are completely different because if, if the states want the same access, as Australia's got, uh, you look at the pig sector, for example, you know, they're still using food waste to feed pigs. You know, we can't do that here. You know, so the cost of production is so much less 
if they want the same access in here, what would that do to our pig sector? So it's this cumulative effect and trying to get, and, and as, as a lobby or lobbying organisation, we did get a serious amount of press on this. In fact, in terms of um, sort of from between the four UK unions, I think we had maybe some, some of the highest um, you know, contacts from the press, national press, national television. I was in Australia radio a couple of times. Um, just on the on the subject because you know they were wondering why we were concerned. We explained it, and then they could see what you know, our point of view was. But 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 of course the UK government are not want to see food inflation. Um, they want to see you know it's, it's all about votes. Sadly, um, but they've got to be very careful, and it's really worrying from a Scottish perspective because you know we've got some really high standards here, fantastically high standards, and it, this could completely you know it could completely wipe the flow with the trade and uh, in, in our internal market because. If it's not about, it's the volumes that's coming in. So if that volume just completely undermines our market, then we 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 struggle to then you know get that you know that premium price that we're commanding with beef at the minute. It, it is a a worrying future. I mean, like you, you almost worry that hopefully in in a post Brexit world that the UK government isn't going to reduce our welfare standards to compete because if that happens, then what's all this work we've done for and you'll find a lot of farmers that aren't going to be happy with that. But the, the standards thing is such an issue. It, it just, I don't know, I don't know what the answer is. How, how can we have these rules that I think are very much merited for welfare and environmental yeah. regulations and then just import stuff that completely abolishes those rules? I mean, when, and when you're saying economies of scale there as well, I was actually looking up on this just for another reason yesterday. The average small farm in Australia, a small beef farm has 412 head. Yeah. And, that's small, you know, you can't compete with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, 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 yeah, I mean, it, it, there's there's over, I think there's 60% of the beef produced in Australia is produced in beef lots in excess of fifty of 10,000 animals. Now, that's just, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's huge. I mean, you look at, you know, my oldest daughter was out in California and uh, two years past November, they were in the Harris, the, with the Agri Affairs Committee, again, three young farmers. And, uh, and they were in the Harris Ranch, and when they were there, there was 115,000 cattle in that one feedlot. One feedlot, there was 115,000 cattle in it. And they've got no water in California. You know, you know this, is, this is the thing. We can do it sustainable here because, the, excuse me, they're, they're, they're depleting their water reserves because they're fed from, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's wells and underground sources of water they have. And it's a real struggle. And yet, you know, we can do it naturally here when it's, you know, on grass that we have. We can't eat, we can't grow cereals here, we can't. Uh, on our type of ground, we're ideally placed for livestock. So it's, it's we're using that from a, a sort of a, you know a carbon element as well. Climate change. We're keeping our landscape green because we're managing to, to graze it. So that's helping sequester carbon. So and I mean it's not just about livestock. We've got to remember the cereal sector is massive in Scotland as well. And of course, if you know the standards are growing conditions, are growing standards that what we use and how we look after soil health. Is paramount, and to be fair, the arable sectors led that way when it comes to soil health in the past. And uh, you know, we don't want to be undermined by you know grain products that's going to come in and undermine our market for for malt and barley as well, because it's a huge part of the economy is, is barley. You know, fish, salmon, and whiskey is a huge part of the economy in, in Scotland. And and if we have these things undermined, you know, it's it's um, you know cereal sector. There's only we're only half about, and again, fruit and veg is all the same, very, very high value. There's only about eight or nine percent of our land is what they deem prime agricultural land, and it needs to produce that high quality product. And in terms of output, um, economically, it's massive, it punches way above its weight. 
Yeah, it, it's interesting when you say about water there, but I mean, water security is not even something we consider in Scotland because, <laughs> well, I think you know why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, there's there's so many different prongs to it. It's not just single bits, and yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting though. Hopefully, hopefully, well, I'm sure it'll have its hurdles, but hopefully, after a few years, we'll sort of even out and find a yeah. some kind of even playing field. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, obviously, you mentioned Brexit. Uh, <laughs> how can you not um, I, I'm not a political person anyone that listens to me quite often knows I know nothing about politics but uh, on Brexit I mean the, the, one of the some of the main issues coming with Brexit and obviously sort of Covid has further impacted this but Brexit you would think is sort of the, the, the first pillar given it's not given it's permanent and Covid should disappear I hope um, as we're not seeing sort of pickers you know fruit pickers we're not seeing shearers coming from, from New Zealand and stuff like that what sort of future do you think we have there? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of impacts uh, from Brexit and we're still facing a number of these uh, impacts and one of the one of the, one of the big ones is seed potatoes still because we still can't accept, export our, our seed potatoes across to Europe we have a big market across there um, and that market's still looking for our seed potatoes um, and the problem is, is again this is and it's all politics. It's, this is the this is the real problem, and this is why there's a challenge because Europe are making the making the case that you know it's not going to be easy leaving Europe. You're going to have it challenging, um, and uh, and of course the UK government are saying, well, no, this isn't a problem for us at all. One of the biggest concerns we have on, on sea potatoes again with live exports for animals going across to Northern Ireland, massive issues there, especially from the black-faced breeders. Uh, point of view because we've got you know you know you lambs that have been traditionally bought and going across to um, Northern Ireland have done for a long long time now and there's that's still causing problems because of the the, the regulations that, that that they can't go across just now and that's causing that's going to continue to cause grief until until we get recognition and Europe come to the table and understand what the what the you know the challenges are because they're not feeling the implications just now and this is where we need, we're pressuring the UK government as much as, as anybody. And we're, the Scottish government are actually behind us on this one. What's happening with the seed potatoes is because we didn't agree to dynamic alignment in the, in the, when, we, when we left Europe, um, they're not agreeing to the equivalence of standards when it comes to sanitary, phytosanitary standards that we have, which is all nonsense. And, and I can understand to a certain degree why the UK wouldn't agree to dynamic alignment, because if they did that, then what was the point of, uh, of Brexit? Because... Agreeing to dynamic alignment means if there's a regulation change in Europe, we've got to agree to that regulation change as well. So that means that, you know, what was the point in having it? So we actually had a, I'm now as president, I'm in the, in the COPA um, meetings, which is COPA Kajika is the sort of European farming unions and farming cooperatives. So COPA being the unions, Kajika being the, 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 the cooperatives. And I attend these meetings on a, on a, on a, on a, on a monthly or, or, or meeting when, when, when they happen. And the last one, not the last one, but the one before, and we were speaking to the commission, and they, without any qualms, said, well, no, you've decided to leave. You're going to face the consequences. And it was just almost like a door being shut in our face. And we're feeling almost, um, yeah, it's very challenging, because particularly in the seed potato element, and now we've got a challenge with the UK government, because they're now talking about bilateral agreements, whereby if some of the seed potatoes in Europe meet the standards that we want them, uh, uh, meet the standards that we think they should be, then the UK government could import on a bilateral basis. And we think this is 
totally wrong, totally immoral, because it still doesn't allow us to export our potatoes back out to Europe. So we can't have it one way. So not only do I have the sort of um, asymmetrical trade, but we've got asymmetrical friction as well when it comes to trying to get, um, you know, checks and, and, and such like, and, and, you know, border checks that's happening at the minute with our products getting exported. Um, and But we don't, it seems to be a one-way traffic, and that can't happen. Um, and if we're not careful, and especially from a Scottish perspective, because agriculture is such a big part of the Scottish economy, um, it, it's massive, relevant to what is happening in the UK. Now, I fully understand that some of the, the growers down south are looking for some of that seed to come in because it's for a different product. Some of the, the potatoes, the seed potatoes are bringing in, can't grow at the minute in Scotland. But, well, if there's no alternative, well, that will hopefully bring the pressure up to get this um, you know, recognition and bring the Europe to the table and say, and it's not till they start seeing friction and us saying, no, it can't come in, then they'll start putting pressure on Europe to say, well, okay, there is equivalence here. Let's continue with that trade in a, in a, from Europe and the UK. That's what we want. It's either has to be trade going both ways or no trade going in any direction. It can't be one-way traffic or it completely undermines what's a big monetary, um, you know, high-value crop um, you know, sector in, in, in Scotland. So concerned about that. Well, I mean, the, the sheer meaning of the word trade is yeah, to trade. <laughs> it's Absolutely. not just that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again yeah. and again, that's 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 uh, you know that's relevant to the to the to the beef as well because we keep getting told we're fantastic opportunities for us to sell our high value beef into Australia, but then nobody says that Australia still won't allow beef to go into Australia because of the BSE situation that was still yes. there, which is totally gone, but they're using that as an angle to say, yeah, well, when it comes to that, we'll take it in, but not yet. We're still not accepting it. So we're, I can't see a, a hugely uh, low population in comparison to us in Australia looking for a massive export opportunity to export beef here, saying, oh, let's have some of that high-value beef from Scotland coming into Australia. It's just like David and Goliath in comparison. Yeah. You know, scale is huge. Yeah, absolutely. And what I mean, Brexit obviously brings up pretty much we're talking about trade, we're talking about struggling to get workers. But on the ground of things, the first thing as farmers we all thought about was subsidy. What does it mean for subsidy? What do you think the future is there? Well, there's going to be concerns. There's going to be, I mean, you know, when you look at how future policy is going to be developed, you look at what's happening south of the border and the environmental land management scheme, we're really concerned about that. Uh, seriously concerned again from a from a livestock perspective, but not only livestock because it's it's about the whole it's about the whole sort of support structure that we have in agriculture. Okay, cereals prices aren't too bad at the minute, but as soon as you get down to you know malt and barley, if you know you can't really produce it unless you're getting a minimum of 140 pound is going to be what's required, and that's just cost of production. That's just breaking even. That's provided you get a good harvest. So unless it's a reasonable price. That support still absolutely needed in the cereal sector as well. But again, from a livestock perspective, looking at the elms and what they're looking at further further south, that's really scary. And we've been trying to we've been sort of trying to fill that policy void that's coming from Scottish government to say, no, we still need that basic level of support going forward. And to come back, this is relevant to Brexit because um, you know you know we we need we've now got an opportunity to develop a policy that's fit for Scotland not under the sort of one-size-fits-all under a European um, uh, sort of umbrella. So what we want to do is try and make sure that we can support the right sectors in the right way, albeit there's going to be some form of conditionality on it. We're going to have to do more for climate change. We're going to have to do more for biodiversity. We know that, but we can't look at them all in silos. We can't look at, say, let's, you know, this is about developing an agricultural policy 
that can deliver for climate change objectives and biodiversity objectives, not having a climate change policy that will do something for agriculture, because agriculture is absolutely key to the targets we have in front of us for net zero by 2045, 75% reductions by 2030. So we'll have a lot of challenges in front, but agriculture is in, is in pole position to deliver that. And would that support come in the form of a sort of similar subsidy-based thing or more looking at the sort of buying side to increase prices, which is obviously tricky with consumer? Well, I, I think I think the support needs to come, and this is where the big debate is right now. Uh, actually, as we speak, uh, you know, we're, we're, there's you know debate on how this policy is going to be developed. We've had um, you know farmer-led groups that were kicked off um, back in <clears throat> 2019. The first one with it was co-chaired by Jim Walker and the Suckler Beef Climate Group. Then there was another um, Fergus Ewan cabinet secretary at the time. Then uh, then kicked off the other four farmer-led groups, which was the the dairy, arable big sector group in the Hill and Upland and Crofting group, which all report by the 24th of March this year. Um, but the interesting thing was all sectors were on the same page. And this is a sort of an opportunity for Scottish government to you know, have the industry leading when it comes to how we can you know, meet these challenges. And these groups all reported with very similar views on, on biodiversity, climate change targets. But at the core of it all was still food production. I think we've got, what we've always got to remember is if we don't produce enough food here, then we're going to import it from other parts of the world that don't have the same concerns as we do. And all that's doing is offshoring our emissions to other parts. And then we don't, and then we've, we've then lost our employment, we've then lost our infrastructure. And that's why the support element in the critical mass is so important in Scotland. Because if we don't have that certain degree of critical mass, then you don't keep the infrastructure in place, which is markets, abattoirs, maltsters, processors, the whole lot. So we need that activity element to be part of it, albeit there's going to be conditionality on it. And just now, I mean, kind of moving away from, we're talking about everything, COPs coming to Glasgow in November. Um, do you think that does that does anything for Scottish, uh, or, you know, just Scotland in general, really, but looking at agriculture? Yeah, I think it gives us a platform. We've got quite a lot of irons in the fire with, with COP26. We're still waiting to see if we can get access to the green and blue zone, which we're hoping we'll, we'll, we, will, we will get into. Um, I know another, a lot of other organisations have been, have been told, no, that's not possible. But in, outside of that, we still have a lot of plans, um, you know, when it comes to you know, promoting what Scottish agriculture brings, both economically um, and from a climate change and biodiversity perspective and, and where we are in, ter in relative terms to what um, other, other um, countries across the globe are doing. And I mean, that was the two, and that's the sort of the two, yeah, the two real things that, that was my priorities as, as president was making sure first and foremost, we can have a correct policy going forward. Secondly, uh, uh, that education element that, that allows people and the influencers, the people that are making the decisions, educate them to understand what agriculture is doing. And I think COP26 in Glasgow gives us a great opportunity to influence the decision makers to say, well, yes, just be careful that you don't tar us with the same stick with what's happening you know, in other parts of the world, because that's not the case in Scotland. And I assume there's a, I, I don't actually know much about COP and how these showcases work, but is there an opportunity to sort of like, you know, welcome to COP and you can sort of showcase what's happened in Scotland? Is that part yes. of it? Yes, yes. Yeah. And part of that will be collaborative as well. We're, we're looking to do things even with some of the European farmers as well. Because, yeah, although sometimes we're quite competitive in some of the things we have across Europe, from an agricultural perspective, COP26 is massive. So we're all in the same position. I mean, I mean, we're all looking at, 
you know, how things are, are, are looked at in agriculture. I mean, even the way the sort of calculations are done right now, we're talking about carbon footprints, but agriculture is always, uh, it's always about emissions. It's always about methane. It's always about nitrous oxide. It's always about carbon dioxide. Um, and it's all about tailpipe emissions that's measured. Nobody, men nobody mentions or measures the fact that we're actually sequestering a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere because of the practice we're doing. So that sequestering and that landscape that's behind me, what's on farm here, is doing a massive amount when it comes to climate change and biodiversity. But then when you look at forestry, and this is where there's always a bone of contention, a really serious one, the forestry side, you're never counting the negatives. So nobody's counting the, 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 the plowing, the infrastructure, the transport, the processing, uh, and then probably the transport in two ways. Uh, so nobody counts the downside. It's always about the net uh, the, the net sequestration in forestry, but it's always about the net emissions when it comes to agriculture. We should be counting it more, um, sort of taking that holistic view when it comes to the proper calculations so that everything's counted in the mix. And we know find that grassland sequestration is actually very high now as well. Science is actually moving in our favour, I have to say, but it's trying to keep that science up to date. Even again, from the methane point of view, looking at GWP 100, which is the calculation that's getting used Global warming potential is the calcul 100 is, is the calculation that's used under the IPCC, which is Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Mm -hmm. um, they look at this for the calculation as GWP 100, which is that um, long-term emissions of methane. GW that, that's 30 years old. That scientific mm -hmm. research GW, GWP star, which is um, newer, uh, it recognises the short-term emissions of methane because it breaks down and is sequestered back in. So there's a difference between methane and carbon dioxide because methane is a flow pollutant. So what's emitted by cattle is sequestered back in through the ground, whereas carbon dioxide builds a stack all the time. So that's a stock pollutant rather than a flow pollutant. So it's quite, uh, there's some real different uh, challenges in there. I'd never considered that. We always look at the positives of forestry and the negatives yeah. of farmland, but never look at the positives and the yeah. negatives. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So you have yeah. a lot of a lot a lot of forestries um, <coughs> car carted and transported for yeah, sometimes hundreds of miles, um, and then sometimes it's even exported, and 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 it's really frustrating when you see that export and then you bring it back in imported once it's been processed as well. So that's really frustrating. Um, so uh, we need to do more on the processing side in all fronts here at home. That whole idea has never made sense to me. I mean, like, you know, I'm not going to call out companies. We know the companies that shift wood fuels. Like, um, they're shifting logs to go into biomass boilers as chip and stuff like that halfway across the yeah. country, but they're spending that diesel the whole way. It doesn't yeah. really seem correct. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, when you look at, when you look at the Drax power station um, that burns and wood chip now as opposed to, as opposed to coal, and they use about they use 130 percent of the UK's production for timber, and 30 for that 30 percent comes in from South Carolina, you know. And you think this is absolute madness, you know. Whereas you know, none of that's you know that interest, that sort of cost, and 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 is uh, it seems crazy to be quite honest. It just flies in the face of reality. It does, it does absolutely, and it, it, it seems like a good time to sort of shift on to to something quite closely related. We're we're on forestry at the minute, Martin. What, a big buzzword, if you will, at the minute is agroforestry, mm. which is, I think there's so many merits to, but I think it's getting to that sort of stage where we're maybe going past the beneficiary side and going into maybe sides yeah. of detriment. What do you think about agroforestry? Yeah, agroforestry, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a different thing because agroforestry is probably what's behind me just now. 
that's what you would term as agroforestry because that's part part of um, you know that that's part of farming is providing shelter, it's providing shade, it's providing biodiversity, it's mixed in with agriculture. It's not blanket forestry. So there's two different things here. And I mean, I mentioned the farmer-led groups and how they reported. Well, the the farming for 1.5 degrees have just had their final report out now as well, and they're recommending about 6,000 hectares in agri in agroforestry and try and get you know, farmers to take up these options where you can put small bits in, whether it's wildlife corridors, um, that helps as a, a carbon sink. Um, so it's helping with climate change. It's um, helping in biodiversity because you're, that is creating that wildlife corridor. But it's also integral to the farm because you're maybe, you, it could be a double fenced area for, from a sort of biosecurity element, or it could be uh, shade and shelter. So you've got all these things in the mix. So agroforestry and how it's integrated uh, within the farm Absolutely ideal. But the blanket situation we're seeing just now, and again, 1.5 degrees uh, reported, had also highlighted that we shouldn't be, you know, unless if there's going to be more than 20 hectares, we need to have a right um, uh, look at, you know, you know how this is going to affect, um, how this is going to affect the rest of agriculture, how it's going to have an effect in the, in the rural area as well. Because taking farms out, you know, whole farms out, which is happening right now and all getting planted, can't go on. Because all that's doing is, is you're going to create that um, that that sort of monoculture again. But more importantly, we're limiting our opportunities for young people to get a start and get on the farming ladder. Um, and we're also limiting our ability to produce food. I think we've always got, we, we, we dropped that bit um, you know, too quickly. The food and drink element in Scotland is massive. And if we can't produce it here and we rely on other nations to produce it, it doesn't give us much of a bargaining chip when it comes to, um, you know, whether it's trade deals or having a, an argument or a dispute with another country, if you can't feed your own country, you're not, you've, you, you haven't got an awful lot to bargain with because you're reliant so much on others. When it, who knows what's going to happen in the future? And limiting our ability to produce food is a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, I, yeah, I, and, you know, what you're saying about agroforestry, I was always completely for it. I thought it was a great thing until recently you heard of folk, people selling ground that you go grow grain on or maybe not yeah. selling it putting trees on it instead it's just yeah yeah wild. yeah and there's a there's another there's another concept to that one as well because you know there's the there's whole, the whole carbon credit story as well um and of course carbon credits is the new sort of people are looking at as the new sort of gold dust basically um, in, in scotland and it's our green credentials that we have here my real worry about this and again this is from a probably from a tenanted point of view as well um, you know, there's a lot of estates in, in Scotland that are, that, are, that are, you know, asset rich, absolutely, maybe a little bit cash strapped. Do they want to continue with a tenancy if it's not a secure tenancy or do they want to say, no, let's let's finish that and plant it in trees and we can sell our carbon credits? And that's a real worry. What we should be, we should be far smarter with this. Um, so when it comes to the peatland code or the forestry code or the soil carbon code, all these credits are going to be on the market. Uh, I think it's really dangerous because we're actually we're pulling the rug from under our feet and we're selling our crown jewels. Our crown jewels could be the green credentials and we could be, we've got, you know, as well as having net zero targets, we've also got targets to meet uh, Ambition 2030 is about having food and drink doubling its value by 2030 from where we are at the minute. The best way to do that is probably from an export point of view. And I know that's, that, that brings its own challenges uh, because that's, you know, you're thinking we want to you know, use our own product instead of importing. But if you want to double the value, the green credentials we have on the products we're producing, whether that's grain, cereals, fruit and veg, um, beef, lamb, whatever, uh, 
you know, we could be selling the green credentials in these products every day of every week because our carbon, our carbon credentials should be on these products rather than selling it in the open market. As soon as we sell it in the open market, it goes into the private sector. Once it's in the private sector, it could even be overseas. So we've got overseas enterprises, multinational companies, maybe even airlines that are saying they're now green because they've bought the green credentials from agriculture and forestry. I don't think so. It doesn't make their planes fly any greener. So whereas we're selling our green credentials, and I think we need to be really careful in this one, and we should stop that selling right now until we address it properly. I was speaking to someone just a couple of days ago for another podcast, Kevin Harrison of the NSA, um, and we were talking about the sort of idea of offsetting in whatever manner. I get it. Offsetting is better than not offsetting. But if just because you buy a woodland doesn't mean that woodland wasn't there. You haven't fixed anything. You might <laughs> look better, but nothing's better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's, absolutely. Uh, yeah, questionable. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, the thing, the thing is, I mean, I'd rather see, I mean, some, you know, we, we, we've got probably a, an easier opportunity here to have carbon credits on the ground that's behind us than maybe some of the intensive sectors like pigs or poultry. Now, I would far rather, because of the interdependence between all sectors in agriculture, I'd rather that instead of trading the green credentials that we maybe have, I'd rather the pigs and poultry sector had that because, we, you know, oddly enough, you wouldn't think it, but I rely on the intensive uh, uh, sectors like pigs and poultry because the amount, the demand, and so does the cereal sector, because the demand they have on cereals for feeding so that we can actually produce yeah. pork in this country, produce chicken, have eggs, uh, good high quality uh, eggs. Um, the demand that they create on the cereals provides us with straw. So because of that, so if they weren't having that huge demand, I mean, it's thousands and thousands, tens of tens of thousands of tons that's used every, every year um, from that sector. Um, that's creating the byproduct for straw that we need for bedding our cattle in the winter when we've got the, the cows that are inside in the winter. So that's straw. And then because we've got that straw, that product goes into dung, it's made into farmyard manure, then it goes out, it goes back on the land. Because it goes back on the land, uh, it's adding organic matter to the soil. It then uh, maximises the, the, the soil health and its ability to cap capture carbon and organic matter. So, I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all interdependent. So I would rather see the carbon credits being evened out across all sectors in agriculture. And then as we sell any product from Scotland, then it's ag Scottish product, ag Scottish agricultural PLC that has that carbon credits and that value should be on the product we're selling. And we, we look at sort of aiming for circular, I can, I can never say that word. Circular, circular economy. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been able to get my mouth around that word. So glad you knew what I was saying. You don't get much more of an example of than than what you've just said. You know, yeah. everything's working in together. Um, yeah. 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 And and on carbon, I mean, we're talking about credits here and, and stuff like that. We're, we're aiming for net zero. Uh, what what is the date for net zero? Is that twenty fifth? Twenty forty five. Twenty forty five. So we're aiming for net zero. Um, what net zero means, I think, is still somewhat yeah. ambiguous. Um, uh, and, and how we measure it is also kind of up in the air as well. I mean, we have some pretty good calculators out there, but it, it's still in its infancy and it's a bit of a struggle. But what does net zero mean um, as sort of as close as you can sort of think? What, what do you think net zero means exactly? And uh, do you see us reaching that target in 25 years? I think it's about, you mentioned the calculations, Wallace. It's absolutely about the calculations. I mean, you know, when you speak to Meat and Livestock Australia, they say their, their uh, red meat industry is going to be net zero by 2030. But they're using different calculations. 
So, yeah. uh, so I believe that if you looked at the background behind me and calculated it all correctly, I believe areas like this is probably carbon as net zero already. Um, but again, we can't look at things uh, holistically. We've got to do, and I totally agree, we've got to do more. I mean, we started doing soil mapping here. We're a whole farm, we're doing soil mapping now. This is our, next year will be our fifth year. The following year, we'll go back to the start again. And we're, we're GPS, um, uh, you know, testing the soils and uh, variable rate application of lime. Now, that's a big saving. Uh, and I think all these things, you know, more of us that do these kind of things is going to help. But I think it's about the calculations. And I think, you know, from a Scottish perspective, I, if we count everything, because again, the forestry you've seen behind me, although it's agroforestry, that's not accounted and attributed to agriculture, which is totally unfair. That's attributed to forestry. Agriculture, although it's a farm woodland, that's not attributed to um, agriculture, which is totally wrong, absolutely wrong. And that needs to change uh, so that we get recognition for what we've done from that point of view. And again, coming back to this, it's, it's far more than just the net zero element, because if we were to look at, and just to give you an example, um, if we're to look at solely uh, meeting net zero and carbon footprint, as I said, we've got sort of continental cattle on the low ground. If you look at their carbon footprint in comparison to the highlanders on the hill, it's far better because they grow quicker, they'll go away, they get finished earlier. So their carbon footprint is actually really good. But when you look at the highlanders, they're terrible because they're a lot later maturing, but they're doing far more when they're on the hill for biodiversity. So, so from a climate change point of view, you would get rid of the Highlanders, but from a biodiversity point of view, you get rid of the Continentals. So how do you square that circle? So we need to have something and a form of calculation that takes that into account. And again, it comes back to the element of food production as well. So we've got three things at the top of the agenda. Ability to produce food, we'll have to address climate change, and we need to address biodiversity. But we can't look at them in silos. We need to look at them as a group altogether. Yeah, and it, it, that's, I think, really calculation is slightly flawed i say slightly yeah. I, I don't know much about it but um uh, you've got to consider all those three things we can't just say yes we're perfect for carbon yeah. but we're not producing any food or we're yeah. perfect for food production but there's only one food being made here and it's the only thing we have on this you know it's yeah. a absolutely and we've actually we've actually pulled together all these you know the three organizations that are looking at this nature spots one of them they're looking at uh you know developing an app an app that looks at what biodiversity is on the ground. Uh, we've also got um, how AgriCalc is looking at uh, the way that calculator is working in the minute and how that's progressing. And then we've got SOS, who have a carbon carbon positive, um, sort of uh, developing a carbon positive um, app. So you can look at uh, 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 the metrics behind that um, so it recognises what's on the ground at the minute. So it's about pulling all these three things together. And we, we, we've been try, trying to do that. We'll actually have a meeting on this again next week, how we can actually pull that all together instead of having a carbon uh, situation, an environmental situation, and then you've got the food side as well. You want to be able to pull that all together in one audit. You want to be able to, so you can see, well, this farm is... Um, that's where it sits from carbon, biodiversity, environment, all these things. And then you can build up a national picture and that would give you a national picture of where the whole country is. And I think yeah. if that's done correctly, we'll be in a great position globally. Yeah, yeah. No, sounds, sounds promising. You mentioned VRT there, variable rate technology on the line. Um, you, do you have any idea as to what sort of percentage savings you are seeing there or are you not sure? It was really interesting because we did it. Yeah, I do. Because uh, we, we say, in fact, it, was, it wasn't really just on the line. What, what's, uh, what we found out when we did it the first year 
Uh, and since then, we've found out right across the farm, because as I said, this is the fourth year, next year will be the last year, and we've been around it all. But we found we were through the roof in phosphates, absolutely through the roof, almost to the detriment of uptake of nutrients with plants, because the phosphates were too high. Uh, and so for the last four years, we've been putting very limited phosphates on, and that saved us 30 pounds a tonne. And the lime was interesting because we'd never done that before. And when you watch the, you know, it's all done obviously through the through the computers and the tractor. It's about it's a little bit dearer to put it on, but you're saving it because you're not putting it where it's not required. So our target pH is six point two. We'll try to get the whole farm and the sort of the lower the lower ground up to about six point two. And uh, the first time I saw the spreader going, you, you thought it was knackered because it was going up the field. There was a lot of lime coming out. Then all of a sudden, it was just shut right down. It just meant that on that bit of the field, it wasn't needing the lime. So that was why it was so, you know, was, so I think it's I think it's great technology. I think it's fantastic. Um, and it's, it's helping to balance up the fields, you know, right across where there's, you know, the, all quite often your, your higher dry knolls or, you know, the limes coming out of that are, are uh, maybe leaching out of that a little bit more than it is in the sort of hollows. And you can see that working in practice with the when the lime spreader's going. But in terms of the fertiliser saving the £30 a tonne, that was a direct saving because we're doing that soil, soil mapping, you know, so. Do you, do you do it for spraying as well or just fair and lime? No, no, we don't. I use GPS, I use GPS for spraying. Uh, just to assist in spraying, I mean, a, yeah, but but I don't do, but I don't I don't have the we don't have that sort of technology here. But I mean, no. the arable guys are using this on a constant basis. They've been taking the lead in this for years. It's brilliant stuff. I, mean, I I focus quite a lot on the sort of arable advancements in my masters like that, and like controlled traffic farming, mm -hmm. uh, real time kinetics, all that stuff's phenomenal. Like the, yeah. the savings it can make crazy. Um, on on sort of arable there a couple of things that that might be hitting us quite hard or maybe for benefit who knows um we glyphosate's in a rough area uh, for those who's listening might know about his roundup uh, uh, i don't really know where it's going do you think it has a future in the industry do you think it's still here in 10 years or I think it needs to be here for a whole raft of reasons or a replacement to do it because again from an environmental perspective i mean we you know you know, a lot of the arable sector now is using min-till, uh, uh, a, a low-till, strip-till, and I mean, they, they rely on Roundup to do, or, or glyphosate to do that as well. And that's an, that creates an environmental benefit because you're not, you're not doing the same level of ploughing. I'm not saying you can't, you know, you shouldn't be ploughing because in some areas you still need to plough, depending on the soil type, depending on where you are. Um, but I mean, you know, and again, you know, if you didn't have glyphosate, we'd be probably limited and be able to do that because that, you know, creates that um, that that barrier for the weeds. You know, you can control your weeds better. Uh, you wouldn't be able to grow your crops properly with min-till or zero-till if you didn't have um, if you didn't have that, you know, glyphosate there. From our own perspective, I've not ploughed here for nine years now, um, and the reason being, uh, nine years ago we bought a direct driller because we don't grow any cereals here, but we do grow quite a lot of turnips and rape and kale for finishing lambs. And again, this is about, a, it turns out, I mean, and this isn't this isn't why, this is ironic, but this isn't why we bought the driller. The reason we bought the driller is we're six fed, fed up lifting stones all the time, because every time we go in and plough a field, all we've got to do is go and lift stones. And then you disc it, and then you lift stones again, then you harrow it, you lift stones again, then you sew it, and then you pull the lift stones again. It's just, it's, it's, yeah, I've done it for, I've done it for far too long. And we got the idea, we thought about it for a couple of years and looked at various ones and we imported a New Zealand machine, actually, an Aitchison driller, direct driller. And um, you can direct drill grass or rejuvenate grass with it as well. But what we use it for mostly 
is um, direct drilling rate and turnips and kale. And uh, we now actually have, because we bought it nine years ago, our neighbour wanted to try it as well, tried a field. Um, it works really well. Uh, and then it's just growing. It's, it's bananas now because we're doing over 500 acres a year now. Uh, right. we'll, have two, we'll have two drillers and we're going all over the place. I mean, my girls are doing quite a bit of drilling now as well. And they're doing a lot of it, in fact. Um, and it's just caught on. And the, the advantage is, what we do, the, like the first year, we just would, and the thing is, you can do, like, for example, this year with a 15 acre field, um, quite a stony field. We uh, I sprayed it off in the morning, put the fertilizer on the afternoon, drilled it by dinner time the following day. So within 24 hours, the, the crop is in, and you, there's no other chemical required because you don't have a weed challenge, um, and you're using that top bit of the productive soil. You're not plowing up cold soil that's maybe not so fertile, you're not releasing nitrous oxide either. Um, and that's so that's now a benefit of what we're doing. But what we're finding now is the following year, we just disc the surface of that so we don't plow it again. We do glyph put glyphosate on it again the following year, and then we just that gives us a great seed bed because all that sheep ted and dung or cattle, if you've been feeding cattle off it, um, is on the top on the surface, and that gives a great start to the new crop of grass that's going to be there for another 10 years. Um, and it's so it's about soil health. So that's soil, so glyphosate from an environmental and soil health point of view is really required. Now, I can understand where there's concerns, you know, maybe pre-harvest, but we've got to be very careful because if there's going to, if you say, well, there's a risk and you take it off pre-harvest, well, is there a risk? You know, that's not, you're, you're then saying there is a risk. Why? So why are you taking it off pre-harvest? Um, but I think from, from an environmental point of view, using it for what arable uh, uh, sectors, using it on, on, on stubbles to clean them up before it's drilled, um, or, or pre-drilling, or what we are doing in our part of the world, I think it's an absolute necessity from an environmental point of view as much as anything. Because yeah, that again, I'm only using one spray. I'm not having to go on with it. And yeah, since we've started direct drilling, I haven't sprayed for flea beetle. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because there's a lot of divot still there, a lot of grass still there. And if it's, whereas if it's ploughed and it's drilled and it's brown soil and you get a green plant coming up, it's a very easy target, very focused target. Whereas you're still coming up through a, a, a sort of a, a turf and a divot and a, maybe it's not. So we haven't sprayed for flea beetles since we started direct drilling and we've certainly never sprayed for weeds. So it's so we're actually reducing our chemical usage by using glyphosate and it's an environmental benefit too. It's That's great you're not having to spray uh, for uh, flea beetle. <laughs> it's yeah. been yeah. tricky, the country. It, it kind of comes down to that triangle you mentioned of the sort of food production, environmental, biodiversity, doesn't it? I mean, the, yeah. the, the going into human consumption and also the, the elimination of some biodiversity is the two arguments, mainly against glyphosate, yeah. from what I understand. Yes. Um, and the, the argument, oh, it's kind of died down the last couple of years, but it was certainly running pretty strong two or three years ago. And I, I personally don't see it continuing, but I think, as you say, we need something else. You know, yes. it can't just be this is gone. Ah oh, well, you, that's um, it. You know, there needs to be something. Yeah, well, look at the crops. I mean, the, the, you know, I can honestly say the crops of kale, the turnips, and rape we've been growing in the last since we started using the driller have been far, far better, way better than what we were growing before. So, in terms of productivity, it's a productivity improvement. So, if you've been more productive from less inputs, that's a climate change benefit. If we're looking after the soil health better because of what we're doing, that's a climate change benefit as well because we're not plowing up that cold soil, reducing, re releasing that nitrous oxide. So there's a huge climate change benefit of using climate uh, glyphosate as well from that perspective. So it's trying to 
you know, get that understanding across. And without that replacement, I would go back to ploughing. I probably, the grass wouldn't be looking as well as what it is just now. I have yeah. no doubt about that because the time and effort it takes, you know, because, because I'm, you know, there was that operation that would have probably taken us the best part of a week before because, you know, and, and you know, days gone by, we would have, have ploughed that ground, would have spent a long time lifting stones and then you use Treflan. I know that's not there now either, but to try and control the weeds, that would be disked in. So you'd have two passes of discs there. Uh, then you'd level it off again. Then you'd have a, 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 a weed spray. You'd probably have a flea beetle spray. Then you'd still probably likely have a weed challenge and the crop's not as good. So it's about it's the whole thing. We're very careful that we don't just take something off the market just for, the, for, a, for, for an individual reason because that could have wider consequences. No, makes a lot of sense. I mean, it does sort of almost make you think down the roots of sort of uh, gene editing is there potential for the for the crops to be made yeah. not requiring glyphosate put on what, what, I mean with, with Brexit uh, gene editing GMO oh they're slightly different but for for the most part pretty similar weren't allowed in, in EU law um, yeah. do you think that could come in, in a I think yeah I think it's, it's interesting we had a discussion of this uh, just uh, pre-election when we had a like a, a parliamentary hustings and there was all the sort of lead candidates and, and, and across the parties and on the uh, that, uh, from the rural perspective and and it became really apparent that we didn't understand that there is actually a huge difference between GMO and gene editing because mm. genetic modification is about taking a foreign DNA from something else and implanting it into what you're trying to change. Gene editing is just fast-tracking plant breeding. So it's two completely different things. And I think as that becomes more apparent, people are looking at gene editing a little bit differently. Because if you look at, even if you look at um, the sort of the vertical farming situation, you see it at James Hutton, you know, that <coughs> gene editing, you can do that very, very quickly. And you and you but if you if you do gene editing, you're actually, you know, plant breeding at a faster, at a faster rate. And it's just advanced. All you're doing is advancing the technology that could happen sort of naturally over a period of time. So it's fast tracking like a plant breeding. So it, it is different from, from, from genetic, but again, it's about, so it's advanced plant breeding would be the terminology we should be using instead of even gene editing. Because just as soon as you mention genes, people go G GMO, genetic mod modification, Frankenstein foods. That's what goes into their head. And that's not the case at all. That's not what gene editing is about. And I think there's more of a realisation about, and UK government's looking at slightly, yes, Europe are against it right now. And of course, the challenge we have with Scottish government is because they want to stay as aligned to Europe as much as possible, because obviously, politically, if they ever see themselves coming out as independents, they want to go back into Europe, so they want to keep that alignment. So again, there's challenges there as well. But I think all three, Europe, UK, Scottish government, are beginning to realise there is a difference between GM and gene editing. It is a different different system. There was when I when I did my masters, it was in food security, and there was there's twenty three folk in the class seventeen of which were from China, and uh, so they had a totally different outlook on food production. It was really interesting actually to see the sort of you know different cultural impacts and stuff like that. And uh, one of them explained it in a really good way. I mean, they, they'd learned English two months before doing a master's degree in, in English. It was phenomenal. But the way uh, one of my friends described it was. Gene editing is in a shop when there's tomatoes have been bought, you replace it with tomatoes, and genetic modification is putting an orange in. <laughs> that's like, right. That's, that's such, well done, such yeah. a good example. I yeah, mean, it's that's so it's, yeah. it's not perfect, yeah. but it's, it's so good. Yeah. Um, yeah.
I mean, gene editing, the, the, the potentials there are endless. I mean, we're looking at it's not something we require hugely in Scotland, but you're drought resistant barleys, uh, you know, stuff like that. The potentials are, are, are huge. And I hope, I hope it is a stigma we can sort of get out of the, the way of, uh, you know, it being Frankenstein foods, as you say, and, and yeah. putting, uh, what's the one, um, injecting fish, a fish into a tomato, you know, that, that's yeah, all, yeah, yeah. all these sort of things, which, um, yeah. But I mean, it's been great actually to talk, Martin. I mean, I, I feel like I've just sat here for an hour and just picked your mind about uh, what's happening in the world of farming. But um, <laughs> do, do you think there's anything that maybe we haven't covered about yourself that, that we should have or anything that oh. you'd like to say that we haven't been on to? Oh, no, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, uh, not, not that I can think of. No, um, no I'm just, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just, I'm just always positive and upbeat because I think, you know, I think you've got to be positive. And sometimes I get criticised for being too positive. But unless you're positive, you're not going to sell the industry. I think we've got something to be extremely proud of in Scotland. And uh, unless we sell that story, you know, it's going to be a challenge. And I, and I think going back to sort of recognition and, and, and kind of relates to Brexit as well, you know, we thought, you know, sheep was going to be an absolute disaster. And it might have been because what actually saved the sheep sector was, was, was COVID, ironically. I mean, COVID's been absolutely horrendous. We know that. But... You, know, you go back to a year past March when, when um, you know, we, we were traditionally bringing in, as I said, we import about 360,000 tonnes. Some of that product was coming in through Ireland, was coming from Poland, um, and uh, some of the beef that was coming in. And because the food service sector shut down, um, that product ended up in supermarket shelves and people, the consumers didn't want it. They just said, no, I'm not eating, I'm not eating Polish beef. Um, I'm going to eat home product and of course that focused the buyers on the home market that's what saw an immediate price rise in the beef sector which was much needed because it was in a really poor position so it's focused people's minds more now on where our food comes from than what it's ever done so although covid was a, a real disaster from an agricultural perspective I actually focused our consumers mind and that was something we have to be grateful for we need to hold on to it so um so again i think I think, you know, that's something if we can make sure a consumer is, you know, recognised for the support and we deliver what that consumer is wanting, then I think we're going to be in a, in a, in a much better position because, uh, you know, the sheep sector is flying right now. We've got, uh, which is great to see, and that's driven by home demand, not export, because obviously with with, with Brexit, we're, our, our uh, exports were seriously limited. We did get some, obviously, but nothing like what we're doing before. But then we had families going out, going to the butcher shop, having a nice bit of lamb, uh, you know, maybe getting a, a bottle of wine at the supermarket, cooking it at home, so cooking a home-produced product at home, and they were doing it maybe for, I don't know, a third or 25% of the cost it would be if they went out, so which they're doing more often, and we speak to the butchers every week, um, and they're maintaining that consistent 30 to 40% increase in sales that they had pre-COVID. That's fantastic. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really good to see. I was just doing some, I wouldn't say research, I was just looking up some prices uh, yesterday. And I remember this time last year, we were happy at how prices had shot up. So yeah. we're already already in an upward way. And we're, I think it was the overall on AHDB, the overall sheep price uh, dead weight, so that includes cow yards, lambs, everything, you know, was up 65%, 65, no, 65 pence on the year. Yes. Um, on a year that we were already happy. You know, and that's, yeah. that's got to be good. Yeah, it has <laughs> to be good. Has to be. Uh, yeah. yeah. And the thing is, the good thing about it is our consumers happy as well, which is fantastic. Or they wouldn't be buying yeah. the product. And it's it, it's it's good. It, it does feel at the minute as if the consumer is on our side, which yes, sometimes absolutely. it didn't. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, and I mean, I think there's been a lot of reasons for that. I think COVID sort of brought us all closer in general, and, and some of those people are farmers, and we're getting in talking. We're maybe not the best at sort of defending our product from time to time, but I feel like we're not having to anymore, and it's sort of like it's just happening. I think Clarkson's Farm was a good one. I think it did a yeah. lot of good for yeah. I think we're going to, again, we're going to focus that, you know, we're, we're trying to put some, uh, you know, sort of highlight sort of the, they do some of the myth busting, myth busting uh, going into the back end as well to sort of, you know, make sure people know what the real facts are behind yeah. agriculture and, you know, from an economic perspective, from a climate change and biodiversity perspective, and let our consumer know that we are taking this, you know, you know, really seriously and doing our best to try and produce food in a sustainable manner. Yeah, yeah. That's a good good topic to end on, but just before we do end, there's two two things I ask everyone, um, and that's, first off, where do you see yourself in five years, uh, given what you've said so far, I assume not president, but, uh, and then the second thing is, uh, if you had any tips for folk going into farming, what would they be? Uh, the first thing would I see myself in five years. I would see myself here at definitely home, uh, definitely because this. I mean, the, the the one bit I miss is uh, you know any opportunity I try and get, I'm trying to give the girls a help because it's, I, I miss the you know that's I'm you know I'm a farmer through and through, and that that will never change. They'll never take never take that out of me, and I'm just just desperate to do more. And there's always things that I'm seeing needing done that. Yes, it's maybe not getting done because you know I know the girls are focusing on on so much of you know livestock and and, and a lot of you know other work as well but uh, I just think I could go and sort that drain I could clean that ditch out I could yeah I could do all these things uh, that's no happening so I see myself being back here and doing a lot of the bits I want to keep developing and try to be a bit more progressive in the farm that's where I see myself um, and any tips for uh, people trying to come in you know keep being positive about it keep asking the questions keep pushing and keep trying hard to get on the ladder because there's not a better industry to be involved in uh, yes sometimes it's challenging that's that goes without saying, um, but I wouldn't do anything else. Uh, I think you know providing food in the manner we're doing it in Scotland. Uh, I think that recognition is going to increase in years to come, and I think that'll create its own opportunities. But just keep at it. Keep trying to get on the ladder if you can. Keep trying to get onto whether it's an apprenticeship. You know, not everybody needs to be in their own business. A lot of people will say, "Well, no chance. I don't want to have one business." I want to work in agriculture. So it's not just about owning or renting a farm. It's about just getting a chance to work in it um, because, you know, it's a great industry to be involved in. And I think it's, you mentioned it's challenging. I think there are very few things in this world that are rewarding and not challenging. You know, you've got to fight over something for it to be rewarding. Um, yeah, absolutely. I know. Good words, good words. Well, um, I think I think that's us, Martin. I really appreciate your time. Uh, no those of you listening, Martin and I have tried to arrange this about four times and we've <laughs> came across hurdles each time. But uh, we've got it here at the end. Um, this, this for yourself, Martin, will be going live um, come, it'll be September time, I think, maybe the end of this month, but it's about a month's time. Um, but thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. And uh, I hope everyone's enjoyed listening. No bother. Okay. Thank you, Wallace. Speak to you later on.